0: Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and, of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones.
1: And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure.
0: And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter.
1: Conan Doyle, of course, is best known for his Sherlock Holmes stories. But in this podcast, we'll be looking at some of his more obscure work. And we're starting with his 1891 novel, The Doings of Raffles Hoare. Why did uh, you choose this
0: one, Mark? Yeah, this is my fault, isn't it, this one? Uh, (laughs) No, I really like Doings of Raffles Hoare. I think the reason for picking this one was that... uh, Really, three things. I think the first is that... It's written at a really pivotal moment in Doyle's career, right at that point where he is moving from being a um, practicing medic to being a, a full-time writer. And so I think there's something quite significant in um, this being one of those books that is written right at that turning point. It's also a book that spans in a, a number of genres. I mean, Doyle is known as a genre writer, but actually this is an example of a piece of writing where he borrows from a whole range of genres. He's no great respecter of genres. He's more a, a great storyteller in that sense. And I think third and probably um, more relevant for this podcast is the fact that this is virtually unknown. Very few people have written about d- the doings of Raffles Hall, and yet it's a work that actually is quite influential in its own way and has lots of influences and tells us lots of things about Doyle's life and work. So I think it's a, a decent one to start with. Absolutely. So why don't we get started by giving listeners a bit of background on the story, just so people will, uh, will be familiar with what we're talking about.
1: Right. Well, The Doings of Raffles Hall opens on a snowy night in the modest and cosy McIntyre household in the Midlands village of Tamfield. The McIntyres, father, son and daughter, live in genteel poverty due to the failure of McIntyre's senior's once prosperous Birmingham gun manufactory. McIntyre is a drunk... But whether this is a cause or effect of the calamity is unclear. His son, Robert, is a struggling artist of underdeveloped talent, whilst his daughter, Laura, keeps their home in order, or at least until she marries her childhood sweetheart, the bluff and hearty naval officer, Hector Spurling, son of the local vicar. On this opening evening, Hector, prior to a Mediterranean tour of duty, and the McIntyre siblings, their father is in the local hostelry, are discussing a mysterious new arrival in the village. Raffles Hoare appears to be a very wealthy young man who has built an ostentatious mansion for himself, and Tamfield is alive with speculation as to his character, antecedents and intentions. Robert soon has a chance encounter with the enigmatic stranger, and is invited on a tour of his fantastic home, which proves to be a veritable treasure house and a scientific marvel, a dream palace from the Arabian Nights fitted out with all modcons takes a liking to Robert and encourages his artistic ambitions whilst also engaging him as an agent in his own philanthropic schemes. In time, he comes to trust Robert so much that he reveals to him the secret of his wealth. He is a modern alchemist who has discovered an electrical process whereby he can turn base metals into gold. He feels, however, that the fruits of his discovery should be shared and embarks upon a programme of wealth redistribution. But his largesse has unfortunate consequences, not least upon the MacIntyres whose characters are reshaped negatively by their proximity to limitless wealth. Robert becomes listless and idle. Laura throws over Hector to become engaged to Raffles Hall. Worst of all, old MacIntyre's greed and selfishness reach monumental proportions, setting in train a series of events which culminate in tragedy.
0: Mm dot 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 indeed and i think we'll come to what that tragedy is a bit later in the in the mm-hmm. podcast but it's a really interesting little story this isn't it fundamentally it's a moral tale isn't it it's a yes
1: it's it's a kind of a modern fairy tale in 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 many ways and uh, a very basic moral to it about the uh, the evils and of, of mm-hmm. greed and and you know, the, what can go wrong if you have far too much wealth and you don't know how to apply it properly?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there about perhaps Doyle's attitude to to wealth or, or or at least philanthropy as well. And
1: at this time, it's quite interesting in that he's musing on money in in a way that he's just about to break through and make money with his writing, but he's still very much the struggling writer at this point. He's he's in the on the cusp and. Um, he will, within a number of months, write a scandal in Bohemia, which will really make his fortune. He's He started with, with uh, The White Company, but it is the Sherlock Holmes short stories that will push him into that uh, first rank of writers who make a lot of money. And obviously in this book, he's he's probably musing in his own head and thinking, what would it be like if?
0: Yes, that's a very good point. And, and there's even the character of Robert, who is um, really the eye of the story for, for most of the doings of Raffles Haw, is... Is himself a struggling artist there's almost the nobility of the struggling artist at this point in time which reflects where Doyle was you know that that conflict to some extent between art for art's sake and art for um for for wealth or for prosperity
1: and, and also the the element with with Robert is that he, he knows he's not in the top rank
0: Yes. he knows his
1: own he's struggling and he knows his own kind of second rank status and and that's another thing that that uh, obviously bothers him and um raffles hoare is is uh, very uh, thoughtless in pointing this out to robert at one point
0: so I think on that point what we'll do is um, maybe go into a bit of the writing and publication history mm-hmm. at this point because it, like I said at the outset this is a really interesting time in, in Doyle's life and you've just pointed out again that this you know what is going on in the book is almost reflective of what's happening for Doyle himself so this, really, this story really comes about towards the end of 1890 beginning of 1891 and towards the end of 1890 Doyle is in practice in South Sea it's not proving to be terribly lucrative um, he then has a trip over to Berlin in November to find out about a tuberculosis cure and he meets along the way somebody called um, Malcolm Morris.
1: Malcolm Morris was um, a Harley Street dermatologist uh, who would eventually become Sir Malcolm Morris, a very eminent man. Uh, And he... uh, sees Doyle's background as a struggling GP and and says what you should try and do is is become a specialist and he suggests uh, that that Doyle becomes an ophthalmic specialist um, because well everybody always wants to look after their eyes so there's money
0: in that (laughs) dear boy
1: Uh, and Doyle has a think about this and and takes up his advice.
0: And he comes back from that trip to uh, uh, to Berlin and um, almost straight away decides that he's going to go off to Vienna to study. Mm -hmm. And uh, he starts planning a study trip for January. Um, But in the meantime, he gets contacted by Alfred Harmsworth, who is the editor and owner, I think, of a magazine, a penny magazine called um, Answers, which had by then just reached about 300,000 circulation. And uh, Alfred asks Doyle if he's interested in putting forward a story. And uh, Doyle gives him his rate, which at the time is £5 a thousand words, which would be about £300 today, which doesn't sound that far off on people would get paid now either. And he comes up with that idea, but he asks for a quick response from Harmsworth because he needs to know if he's going to have the money so that he can afford to go to Vienna. So Doyle travels with his wife to Vienna in early January 1891, and miraculously over pretty much two weeks he writes 30,000 words uh, alongside attending lectures at the local hospital to learn more about ophthalmic treatments and of course enjoying Vienna so it's quite amazing that he's actually able to produce 30,000 words in two weeks.
1: But he has problems, he's struggling at the time with the lectures uh, because even though he is pretty conversant in German he's not very good with the technical language of German so a lot of the lectures begin to, uh, to get beyond him.
0: So Doyle returns to Portsmouth and pretty much immediately says that he's actually going to set up in London and takes lodgings at Montague Place, which is around the corner from Montague Street, where famously Sherlock Holmes is uh, meant to have taken his lodgings. Absolutely. <laughs> and then he uh, takes also offices at uh, Devonshire Place at the top of Wimpole Street near Harley Street. Um, but he's also working for West other people. The Westminster Thalmic Hospital. Yeah, so, so Doyle actually likes to present himself as being... You know, an empty surgery at this point of time when he sets up, but actually he's quite busy.
1: It's it's all part of the Doyle legend. It, it's it's repeating in many ways the, the 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 South Sea story again. Here I am starting again in a consulting room where nobody's going to see me, so therefore I will write.
0: So I'll uh, just a bit on um, the publication history itself. So Doyle then submits. Uh, the doings of Raffles Hall to Alfred Harmsworth and it eventually appears in syndication in answers in December 1891 through to February 1892 Um, he actually also uh, in 1891 in typical entrepreneurial spirit he actually sells it to SS McClure uh, for US syndication rights which means that it then appears in in a whole series of uh, uh, papers across the United States um in summer and um autumn of, of of 1891 which is gives gives a peculiar twist to uh one part of the publication history which is the the first american edition which actually contains doings of Raffles Hall, but also the red-headed league and the boscombe valley mystery the first time they appear in in book form is actually probably pirated because i don't think doyle had actually given them the rights to uh To the two Sherlock Holmes stories, but um, the publisher Lovell had uh, managed to pad out the the edition with with two Sherlock Holmes stories.
1: Doyle was probably getting used to being pirated at this
0: time. Oh yeah, quite a lot, absolutely. So one of the major themes that comes out in um, the doings of Raffles Hall, but also in other Doyle work more generally, is alcoholism. And that's a very personal subject for Conan Doyle for a whole range of reasons.
1: Yes, his his father, uh, it was one of the big secrets of of Doyle's life that he he managed to keep to himself um, as a very famous man, that his own father suffered uh, from alcoholism uh, throughout much of his adult life. And by the time Doyle is actually writing Raffles Whore and the early Sherlock Holmes stories, his father had uh, been institutionalised in a number of of different asylums uh, Mm. throughout Scotland, um, and, and Doyle had seen the effects of alcoholism within the domestic circle at very, very close quarters. Uh, and it, it becomes a theme throughout much of much of his fiction. Um, it's very pertinent with Raffles Hall because old MacIntyre is depicted very much as a, as a drunk. Um, when the book opens he's very much a, a self-pitying drunk and uh, the collapse of his business is everybody's fault but his own. Um, and as as the story goes on, he becomes more and more bitter as Raffles Hall refuses to share the wealth with Old MacIntyre because he's figured out his personality that he would just fritter it away anyway. Yeah. Um, which Doyle himself had had seen within his own household. His mother had to keep very very close charge of the finances. Um, his his own father would would get hold of any money lying around the house and he would spend it on on drink. Uh, so, Old MacIntyre is very much based on on this sort of sort of character, and we see his his character descend uh, until at the end he descends into into madness, which Doyle had seen with with, with his own father. Although he's I suspect Charles Doyle wasn't quite as unpleasant, no, uh, entirely as Old MacIntyre, but uh, the, there's certainly a degree of that. Um, and what's interesting at this particular time as well is is there's a short story. Uh, which is published in uh, a magazine called *People* in 1891, called um, a, so- *A Sordid Affair*, Affair. Mm. Uh, which depicts um, an artist descending into, drunk- uh, into drunkenness in a very, in a much more sympathetic way to Old MacIntyre. So it it seems quite clear that Doyle had very mixed feelings uh, towards his own father's alcoholism, uh, and could be both condemnatory and sympathetic.
0: Mm. and it appears as a theme doesn't it throughout all of Doyle's work really I mean even if you just take the Sherlock Holmes stories with, which most people will be more familiar with you get characters like Black Peter you get Jim Browner in the cardboard box you get Eustace Brackenstall these are all characters who are um, you know in in their own different ways um, alcoholic I mean Jim Browner is, is probably the most tragic of the cases in that he's actually taken the pledge but he is manipulated by his sister-in-law and ends up um Breaking the pledge again.
1: And it's again, it's the two sides of alcoholism. With Jim Browner, he, he mm. knows he's got a problem and he tries to fight it. Mm. Uh, and it, it all comes out in one blaze of violence at one point. But he's not an inherently violent man. Whereas with Sir Eustace Brackenstall, he's depicted very much as an inherently violent man who drink just makes it worse. Mm. So again, you've got the, 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 the two contrasting sides, which Doyle will have seen in, in his own father's mm. behaviour.
0: And when we were talking before about Raffles Hall, just before recording the podcast, one of the things that we were observing was that actually there are quite a lot of biographical details that then appear in this particular writing. I mean, in fact, Doyle is quite a biographical writer in that sense. He does borrow uh, an awful lot from his own experience, but there are things in here like the labor-saving devices around the Raffles Hall's amazing household. That, that smacks of Doyle's personal interest in devices and gadgets and technology. Um, but there are other things as well uh,
1: other examples include uh, where Hector Sperling is uh, desperate to marry Laura McIntyre just wants to get on with it Um, and he's not really bothered about marriage settlements and he talks about being a naval man talks about living in Portsmouth Uh, and we have him saying we need not have a house why should we you can get a very nice rooms in Southsea at two pounds a week (laughs) Doyle Himself had lived in South Sea as a struggling doctor. He'd, he'd uh, gone there in 1882, uh, found a house at One Bush Villas, and he paid £10 a year for that. So he's he's echoing his own experiences uh, through Hector Sperling.
0: And the other thing that I think comes out in doing doing with Raffles Hall is the point about heredity and this notion that. Um, you inherit the characteristics of your father. He's very carefully done in doings of Rafflesaw because you set up with the domestic scene of the Macintyres, old Macintyre with Robert and Laura, and you even get that sense right in that first scene that Laura may be going to go down her father's track. Right from that first first chapter, you get that sense that there could be something something there. And, and he plays on that theme of heredity both here and in a lot of other work.
1: And it's the idea of heredity. He has Robert McIntyre Uh, when when he describes Robert McIntyre, you have him described as, "'In his mouth only there was something, a suspicion of coarseness, a possibility of weakness, which in the eyes of some and of his sister among them marred the grace and beauty of his features. Yet, as he was wont himself to say, when one thinks that each poor mortal is heir to a legacy of every evil trait or bodily taint of so vast a line of ancestors, lucky indeed is the man who does not find that nature has scored up some long-awaiting family debt upon his features.' And Mm. the idea of heredity is is very strong in this story, but also the idea of is heredity the only driving feature or is heredity when exposed to wealth or drink or or is it just personal weakness or is this to do with heredity? So he Mm. is asking these questions throughout this story and how much are we to blame for our own actions and how much is it just part of our inescapable... Uh, hereditary destiny. Yeah,
0: it's almost a nature-nurture mm. argument again, and and you get that again when in the Sherlock Holmes stories you get Moran and that line about um, trees growing to a certain height and, and then, then becoming
1: some unsightly
0: some unsightly yeah. tendencies, and the other one is of course art in the blood uh, is liable take to the take strange the strangest forms, forms mm. which is again uh, again heredity, and I, I wonder if that's Doyle, you know, the thought that perhaps he had inherited some of his father's characteristics. I think
1: he has this worry. Uh, what is interesting, certainly as regards drink, is that Doyle himself was never a teetotaler. No. Um, but he, he did know how to uh, how to watch himself with the drink. So it, it never actually put him off, but it certainly made him temper his behaviour.
0: That's a really good point, yeah. And then, and alcoholism carries through in all of his writing, doesn't it, really? I mean, you get other ones that we might cover in later podcasts, things like the Japan Box, which is a... A lovely story where I won't give away the twist because it's, uh, but it's about a recovering alcoholic,
1: and, and, and again, it's it's another uh, aristocrat with who can have tendencies towards brutality. He's he's a kinder version of Eustace Brackenstall.
0: Yes, absolutely, and then somewhat more silly story, The Bully of Brokus Court, which is what 1921, quite a late Surprisingly story. Surprisingly late in his yeah, career. Yeah, very late, mm-hmm. but that uh, involves a, a, ghost, a ghostly alcoholic in that one. Um, I wonder if it's worth taking a moment to think of, about this as a genre piece as well because we're increasingly seeing Doyle referred to as a great genre writer but I think uh, one of the concerns about that is that can be said sometimes a bit pejoratively uh, you know it's a way of separating a writer from proper literature as it were and, uh, but he actually does have a great command of genre but doesn't seem to be a great respecter of it. He can borrow all manner of different things. And Raffles Haw is interesting in that it's got bits of a whole range of different genres in it as well. But there are some in particular that, that leap out.
1: Yes, I mean, it's, it's certainly uh, an early example of, of, of a science fiction novel. Uh, in in v- very much influenced um, by the, the the sort of science fiction of, of Jules Verne and, and later H. G. Wells would would take this on and it, I mean you could almost look at Raffles Hoar as in, in in places it's it's almost proto steampunk. Yes, um, in in the way that uh, he uses this technology and extrapolates upon technology and says what what can we what can we do with this um, and that the house itself we we it, it's it's very much. Uh, the house of the future, and uh, I think Doyle is playing in his own mind with it. One day, we might all live in houses that are absolutely full of gadgets, and uh, it, it's, it has come to pass.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, there's a great piece in, in the middle of the book about how raffles Hall's house consists of a... It's basically like the great glass elevator from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, and it moves between different um, ecosystems, essentially, doesn't it? The, the room actually moves... Uh, around us network of greenhouses I think within the house
1: it's it's a it's a form of alternative reality mm. in in many ways but it's it's um not the way we would understand by putting a heads- headset on uh, raffles hall actually does build these these things and, and uses um very much theatrical effects smoke and mirrors with um perspective paintings you know behind palm trees sand and the like and and uh the use of, of heat and cold
0: and there's that nice point in there as well about some of raffles hall schemes which are themselves these sort of grand madcap schemes I like the one about being able to uh, finish off a series of canals to improve trade routes across the world just by essentially building off a whole load of Panama canals at various different points in the world. That's one of his grand schemes for his enormous wealth.
1: And drilling through the earth.
0: And drilling through the earth. So
1: you can build a railway from London to the Antipodes. (laughs) (laughs) Somehow avoiding
0: the core. (laughs) Somehow avoiding the core, yeah. And Paul, you've talked about the Vernian influence on Raffleshor's house, but you think there might also be another French connection here?
1: Yes, Doyle was um, brought up on French writing by, by his mother, um, and and one of the, the writers we you know he definitely read uh, later on um, was uh, the great decadent writer, J.K. Huisman. He did read uh, Huisman's um, book about Satanism, La Bar, uh, in the 1890s, but... Huisman really came to attention with an 1884 novel uh, called Arrebot, uh against nature, I- in which uh, a decadent young dandy locks himself away in his house, and each room matches his moods. Uh-huh. Um, and he has a—he's he, fascinated by colors, scents. And he, he one of his uh, things is gems, and and Raffles Hall has a room of gems which he enjoys showing off, and I I'm pretty certain that, that by this point Doyle had had read Arabor and uh, some remembrance of it in his mind, uh, or or again maybe tribute, uh, comes out in 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 Raffles Hall.
0: And and there are lots of other writers around this time that Doyle might have taken influence from. I think you were looking at a few of the. Possible sources and inspirations for 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 Doyle's story.
1: Well, certainly with uh, with, with this we have um, the influence of, of Jules Verne. Mm. Um, Doyle had read read and loved Jules Verne's stories from from his childhood, and certainly with this idea of a, a tunnel through the centre of the earth, you've got. I think little doubt that that's him thinking about Journey to the Centre of the Earth. Um, but he, he's also. In the tradition of you, you could say from from Frankenstein, mm. with this 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 idea of, of uh, again the, the moral responsibility of of the scientist, um, because Raffles Haw uh, we find is is a scientist who has accidentally found this this way of uh, using electricity to transmute base metals into gold, um, but he 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 does this. At first, without thinking of the consequences, but then he does think, what, what do I do with this power? And he, he does decide that only he can have this power, simply because it would, um, what's the point in having gold if everybody can make it? It would just yes. destroy the world economy. Yeah. So it isn't, it isn't done for reasons of pure selfishness, I will have all the gold and I will have all the power. Um, but it, it's very much, as I say, in this, this tradition where of, of Frankenstein, where there's this, the moral story at the heart of it, Frankenstein creates life, uh, but does he think of the consequences of his actions? Yeah. Um, and you could say the same with, with uh, Robert Louis Stevenson's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is published in 1886, just shortly before Raffles Hall, uh, where you have um, Henry Jekyll inventing the process whereby he can release the evil from himself so that he can get on with doing good things, but he doesn't actually think about the evil that Hyde is doing as undoing all the good that Jekyll is doing. Yeah, so absolutely. it's a pointless procedure.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting in that sense that Raffles Whore is a much more moral character, but he, his, he, he comes across as being quite a naive character as well. He doesn't seem to be able to actually um, filter the various different requests he gets for money and that's actually why he latches on to robert in the story is that he wants somebody else to help him to spend the money and when he becomes close to laura uh, robert's sister he he is uh, they are then planning together all these great schemes for for greater good um but he actually he's not aware of the consequences as you say he he you know and and when he does become aware of them it becomes you know far far more tragic consequences for himself and other people around him as well.
1: It, it's it's Doyle in many ways musing upon ideas that would then find their way into the welfare state. Yeah. Um, it, it, the the fear that conservatives have always had of uh, uh, of a welfare state. So, well, if you hand money out, where's the incentive to work? Yeah. And this is the idea that, that that Doyle is 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 playing with in in this in this story. And and we do get the point at the end where some of the workmen in the village. Lose their, their self-reliance because they simply write letters to Raffles Hall.
0: And as you said at the beginning with the synopsis, the you know with Robert, there's a creeping corruption of of the impact of all this available wealth in that he he starts to lose interest in his art and he 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 can no longer see the point of it and uh, and that becomes more and more pronounced as as we go along. He himself becomes lazy and and unable to focus on on the greater. <laughs> The great artistic talents that he f- he feels he should be able to cultivate and, and and develop and he has
1: this this point where his his last unfinished great canvas is sitting in the attic covered in dust uh, unfinished uncared for and it it stands as as a metaphor for his his own loss of self-reliance and and uh, for for his own sense of of what he could have been uh, and it, it stands as as dorian gray's portrait stands as a as a a moral barometer for him then Mm. this this dusty canvas which is is never going to be finished is 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 another form of moral barometer for robert
0: and that's a that's a great point about dorian gray because dorian gray is one of those stories that is closely connected with doyle because of the commissioning of dorian gray and the sign of four at the same time and those those books are twinned in many ways as we might get onto in in another podcast um and you think that there's a connection there with uh, Invisible Man as well?
1: Well, I think there's a great possibility that that H. G. Wells had had read Raffles Haw, and um, Raffles Haw opens with the character coming into a village, disrupting it, um, being at the centre of rumours and 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 causing problems within the village. Uh, at the beginning of the Invisible Man, Griffin turns up out of nowhere mm. in the middle of a village himself and is is the centre of gossip. Uh, and uh, what's he up to? It, it's very, it's a very similar sort of um, opening.
0: There's an interesting story comes out three years after Doings of Rafflesaw by Wells called The Diamond Maker, and uh, and that really follows. Well, it's a it's a, a, a businessman encounters somebody who's on on the down really, and uh, a, a tramp as as such who is actually offering him uh, manufactured diamonds. Um, and and you sort of see the consequences of the of that individual having had that power, and you're left at the end of the story with a question mark as to whether or not the individual is real and has actually done has actually got this uh, capability or not.
1: And you, you've also got the the similar problems in that story the, with the with the diamond maker himself has the same problems as Raffles Horace. How do you get this money into the world? Where does it come from? So where would all these there are inevitably going to be questions asked, where, where have these diamonds all come from? And in mm. Raffles Hall, there's a speculation, has he found a, uh, a hitherto unknown gold mine in South Africa? Uh, and so the diamond maker has to work in secret uh, and is, is, is mistaken for a, for a bomb-making anarchist and has <laughs> to go on the run.
0: Yeah, and there's actually, old oh, McIntyre has the suspicion that um, Raffles Hall ha- has got his uh, wealth through ill-gotten gains as well. The, the other connection there is that you know, Wells and Doyle are both drawing on contemporary science. Wells, in the case of the diamond maker, is drawing on science at the time, which was to the ability to actually create artificial diamonds. And there was a French uh, scientist who had done just that in 1893, so just the year before mm-hmm. the diamond maker, although the technology had gone back to the 1870s. But, but there's also Doyle's drawing on um, uh, at- atomic chemistry.
1: This is Doyle's own scientific background coming out. Um, mm. To, to he, he's not entirely making the science up, which which so many of these writers do, and they they, they, they fudge the issue of how these breakthroughs were made. Uh, Frankenstein, we never find out exactly how mm. life is given. Jekyll and Hyde, we never. It's a mixture of powders. It's all very vague. Uh, whereas in in Raffles' Hall, Doyle does actually gives some sort of logic using atomic weights as to how you would progress from bismuth through lead and mercury to gold. And he gives the actual atomic weights in the story. And uh, in a letter from Vienna to his mother, uh, written in January 1891, he actually puts a PS in and, and shows how his brother Innes had helped him in this, and he, he, he says uh, in, in this PS, thanks, Innes, for atomic weights just arrived. It is for an alchemist. So he'd obviously <laughs> had his brother go down to the library and find these atomic weights for him. So, but it, it, it does show at least, Doyle felt, that there has to be some scientific verisimilitude mm. in the story. It's not good enough to just vaguely say, and then I found gold.
0: Yeah and that, that that that's a that's a lovely little find there in the in the letters. So you have Doyle being influenced by other people potentially Dorian Gray you then have Doyle also influencing um others in turn in in uh possibly H G Wells in Invisible Man and and uh, Diamond Maker. Um but there's also a really obvious connection uh, of influence here which is in the in the name Raffles Hoare itself because of course Doyle's brother-in-law was E W Hornung who wrote the raffles novels and and is there a connection there
1: uh well we we, we know that um hornung did uh, did take the name from raffles Horror as a little tribute to his brother-in-law uh and he actually did dedicate the first volume of raffles stories the amateur cracksman to doyle uh, as a way of um skewed compliment doyle himself was always a little in, uneasy with this because he felt that you you shouldn't make the villain the hero uh, so it, it sat uncomfortably with him. Mm. Um, but the uh, the origins of of the name Raffles Hall very very strange name in itself. And I think where where does where does this come from? Um, and looking around, I, I'm pretty certain that that, that it comes from Doyle. again Doyle's own personal experience. Uh, in June 1879, when he was um, still a trainee doctor, he worked as an assistant. In, uh, in Birmingham, which is where R- Raffles Hoare is, is set in a village near Birmingham, uh, Doyle worked as an assistant to a Dr. Reginald Ratcliffe Hoare of Chris- Clifton House, Aston Road, Birmingham. Uh, and you look at the name and you think, Reginald Ratcliffe Hoare mm. equals Raffles Hoare. Mm. Um, and shortly before Doyle actually wrote Raffles Hoare, uh, before Christmas, eighteen ninety, he and his wife Louise they they, they stayed over with um, Reginald and uh, and Amy Hoare. So he he kept in touch with uh, with Hall, and Hoare was a great influence on on his life. Um, so I, I I feel this is again it's it's a little. Uh, a little skewed tribute that, that Doyle is paying yeah, to, that's a, uh, to his mentor.
0: That's a, very, that's a really good point. And uh, there's another tribute we should mention here as well, which is Malcolm Morris, who uh, later Sir Malcolm Morris, the dermatologist who uh, Doyle met back in Berlin, actually doings of Raffles Hall is dedicated to Malcolm Morris. Mm. Um, so still fresh in his memory. So where do you think uh, Doyle might have got the, the name Raffles from? Well, Raffles, I,
1: I feel there's there's no evidence for this, but Doyle uh, had was very interested in uh, in imperial history, amongst mm. other things. Uh, and I, I I feel that he's he's taken the name from the founder of Singapore, Stamford Raffles. Yes. Um, and it's interesting that, that the friend of Watson's who introduces him to Sherlock Holmes is called Stamford. Mm. So I I feel this is uh, where where the names come from. Yeah, that's a good spot. Um, I
0: can see that I can see that being the case. And you see a lot in, in many of Doyle's writings, um, he will borrow names and he will they will reappear in lots of different different stories. I think beginning of the return collection of Sherlock Holmes there are several names that are repeated in about four or five stories consecutively. How many Hudsons do we have? <laughs> How many Hudsons indeed, yeah. Well we're on the subject of the identity of Raffles there's a little bit of Sherlockian whimsy I should mention briefly which uh, I-, I discovered from an old Baker Street Journal back in 1947 um, where Christopher Morley one of the founding fathers of the of the, the Sherlockian movement really uh, wrote a regular column called Clinical Notes by a Resident Patient and in it, he supposes that Raffles Haw is actually Raffles Holmes, and perhaps the unknown third and youngest brother of uh, of the uh, Holmes brothers. Um, but he has a he has a very uh, interesting point at the end of this, which is about uh, um, I don't suppose there are a dozen people living who have read the doings of Raffles Hoare, but it's plain to those that have that Hoare was a code pseudonym for Holmes. Why else would Willie Hornung, to tease Watson, have picked on the name Raffles? And he goes on to say that, actually, Raffles Hoare is tall, he's lean, he's pale, he's an incessant smoker, he's prone to chuckling, he wears dark dressing gown, he's he's a chemist. Um, And uh, he says, he had all the Sherlockian stigmata, but he was hysterical, idealistic, and hypersensitive. He was ruined, killed even by his pure love for a woman. Hence, and no one has dared admit it before, Sherlock's horrid cynicism about the sex. And that brings us, really, to the tragedy at the end of of the doings of raffles hoare
1: yes richard again uh, we see the uh, the uh, the influences coming out here is it, it's it's too close to be a coincidence uh in that uh, on the the night of the final tragedy raffles hoare's butler jones knocks on the door of the McIntyre house and says can you come along master something wrong with master he's locked mm-hmm. himself in his laboratory um and so uh, robert McIntyre and the local bobby have to n- break the door in and they find that uh, Raffles Whore has destroyed his laboratory and in the midst of it all sits his body. And it's it's so similar to the ending of, of, of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde mm. where Jekyll is turning into Hyde involuntarily and back again constantly and knows there's no escape. He locks himself in his laboratory um, and his friend Mr. Utterson, the lawyer, has to break in the door with the help of Poole the butler and they find that at the end, Hyde and Jekyll have committed suicide in the laboratory amidst the wreckage mm. of all his
0: experimentation. Mm. Yeah, very, very reminiscent of that scene. Um, and and it's actually quite an ambiguous moment in the way that it's it's written by, by Doyle, in that uh, there's a suggestion, well, Raffles-Haw actually leaves a letter, doesn't he, to uh, to Robert. Mm. And in it, he says that he has a pain in his side. Um, but, but the, the destruction of the laboratory is, is deliberate mm. and, uh, it's quite clearly clear that, uh, he has, he has suffered and there's a great exchange with, uh, the, the constable, isn't there? That, uh, how did he die? And, and Robert says he died of a broken heart. Mm. Um, but it, the, the, strong implication is that this is, this is a suicide and he's destroyed the laboratory and pro- to protect the secret and protect mankind from the secret really for, um, for the for the greater good.
1: And the other tragedy at the end is that Robert McIntyre knew there was a piece of paper with the secret on it. He's <laughs> convinced that still exists, and he's convinced he can find out how this gold process ra- uh, Raffles showed him part of it. He's convinced he can finish it. So he's going to spend the rest of his life in search of. Eldorado. Yeah, it's a really, he's not going to find it.
0: It's a really interesting ending, actually, in that sense, because you have, um, in terms of the the characters that we've seen, old McIntyre is sectioned, which actually mirrors what happened to, to Doyle's father himself, um, uh, and then you have Robert is is essentially depicted burrowing away in a chemistry laboratory trying to find the secret he'll never find, but we also have Laura devotes her, wor- her life to philanthropy, which is about the first selfless Mm -hmm. thing that she actually does in the entire book but the character who comes out unscathed interestingly is Laura's former fiance Hector and there's a really interesting point at the end that Hector Hector is the one who right from the beginning from the very first chapter is morally incorruptible in the first chapter he's found a 50 pound note and he wants to find the owner to to give it back because he thinks the owner will be distraught at losing so much money and Laura says well why don't you keep it and and sure enough at the end of the novel um, Lord, uh, Hector is the one who actually has survived the the, the spreading influence of of, um, of Raffles Hall wealth because he hasn't been in the village and perhaps he was never a morally corruptible character anyway.
1: He's I, I, I get the feeling where he just simply doesn't understand what's going on yeah. as well and and cares nothing for it. Mm.
0: Mm. So that nicely brings us to the end of uh, the doings of Raffles Hall. Um What did you make of the the story, having reread it again for the first time in many years?
1: I, I think it's 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 a very interesting um, early science fiction story. I, I, I think there's there's an awful lot going on for 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 such a short book. Uh, there's there's an awful lot going on there. Um, the the speculation within it, the the, the, the kind of Wellsian Vernian speculation is 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 enormously interesting, um, but also the the, the fact that, that Doyle brings his artistic sensitivities to this as well, and uh, is able to make uh, a, a, a moral story. This isn't just about gadgets and science. this This is about this is about morality, and um, th- this is uh, about responsibility, moral responsibility. It's, it's a it's a, a very interesting blend and. Um, in terms of, of Doyle biography, it is it's absolutely fascinating, um, and the, the the fact that we, we really do also see the professional writer at work th- that he can just write this story in two weeks, to commission, and th- this this is the way when you look at Doyle's bibliography, how he could be so prolific.
0: And I think that point about storytelling is very well made because that's the thing that really strikes me about Doings of Raffles Hall, having read it again for the first time in many years, that actually this is quite a well-paced story. And uh, Doyle really very deftly handles the setup of the the McIntyre family and what is going to happen to them. He He positions lots of clues in those early chapters. And there are some terrific moments within the book. The one that I think really stood out for me is the moment where Laura has decided that she is no longer going to um, be with Hector, and she has switched her allegiance to raffles haw and uh, and Robert knows that this is really for the money it 's not really for love of raffles Hoare. but the person who really points it out very pointedly is old McIntyre, and old McIntyre berates Robert for essentially ignoring the fact that Laura is just manipulating um, the situation, and of course, as he does that. Um, Raffles Haw is in the doorway and hears this and at that instant Raffles actually says you know I, I stand by Laura and I stand by Robert and he turns against old MacIntyre but actually MacIntyre is hitting at a deeper truth there and it's a great moment of Victorian melodrama in the middle of it you also get some terrific moments of comedy we didn't mention that there's an entire chapter where, where which is basically focused on the fact that Laura has said that she wants to what you'd really want to do most in the world is to see a tiger and he and Raffles-Haw essentially telegraphs somebody in Liverpool to bring down a tiger so there's a chapter which is just a tiger turns up in the village, which is his you know typical doyle bit of humor that's thrown into the mix in the middle of in in the middle of the I, story
1: i I feel with with that, that there is there is a lot of whimsy throughout it mm. and, and again I feel the, the, there is a degree of the, the influence of um, robert louis stevenson here and particularly books like the uh, the, the the new arabian nights and, and the whimsy that goes on there but this is also contrasted with uh, the, there's a real sense of of irony and and cynicism goes through the book as well and in in the you have the family set up at the beginning it's all depicted as very cozy mm. And this is the ideal Victorian family. They've they've lost their mother, but they've managed to stay together. And y- you you get these glimpses as as you go on of of you know the, this this family is not what it seems. And it, it, it's Doyle again, perhaps looking back at his own family and thinking, you know, the ideal of family life isn't what it's cracked up to be. And uh, there, there are there are definite uh, you know with, with this family, it's, it's it's to go back to McIntyre and Laura. He's, he's proud of his daughter because she, she's very much her father's daughter yes. with her mercenary motivation and he approves of what she's doing. Yeah,
0: he does. He's going to get the money one way or another, mm-hmm. isn't he? So. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of the doings of Raffles Whore. Um, what have we got planned next time, Paul?
1: For next time, we have planned The Winning Shot, uh, which is an early short story, first published in 1883, dealing with ip- hypnotism and
0: doubles hypnotism and doubles excellent and going back even further into into Doyle's writing career so we hope you've enjoyed the podcast today if you want to find out more about some of the books and influences that we've referenced then go to the website doingsofdoyle.com where we'll be uh, posting the show notes and uh, do join us next time when we'll be talking about the winning shot so until then goodbye goodbye